And please turn with me in your Bibles now to Psalm 100. We are blessed to be given a day tomorrow to give thanks to God. And that's why we're gathering together tonight. We are going to God's word to see how it is that we are to give thanks to God. Psalms 95 through 100 uh, form a unit within the Psalter that really emphasizes the way in which God rules and reigns over all things. Psalm 100 is the capstone of that unit. As Jeremiah noted in his reading, there are a lot of exclamation marks that fill Psalm 95 and Psalm 96 and 97 and 98 and 99 and 100. We are given all of these incredible exclamations in terms of the kind of praise that we are to give to God and why we are to give God that kind of praise. You're going to see all of that here summarized in Psalm 100 tonight. As I read, please give careful attention to uh, the kind of worship that we are to give to God and then the kind of reasons that give rise to that kind of worship. Psalm 100 will be our consideration tonight. So let's give our careful attention now to the reading of God's holy words. Psalm 100. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Please bow with me briefly for prayer. Gracious God in heaven, we come and bow before you now, seeking your blessing upon the preaching and hearing of your word. Lord, we are thankful for an additional time to come into your presence this week to worship you and to gather together with the saints. And Lord, we pray that you would not only bless us tonight by filling our hearts with thanksgiving, but that you would also use this time together to prepare us to bring glory to your name tomorrow in whatever ways we might gather with others and interact with others. May we use the opportunity before us to glorify your name by giving thanks and praise to you, our God. Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself among us tonight in the preaching and hearing of your word so that you might be glorified in our hearts and lives. And so seeking these things, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am thankful for Thanksgiving. And I am sure that all of you are also thankful for Thanksgiving. The very fact that we live in a country where we have a day set aside to give thanks to God is no small matter. This is not insignificant. The history of this national holiday proves the point 
And what is more, the current cultural decline going on all around us makes it all the more amazing. So how did Thanksgiving become a national holiday? Well, you know that our Thanksgiving traces its roots all the way back to 1621 when the pilgrims held a harvest feast to give thanks to God. As time went on, the New England colonists regularly celebrated different various days of Thanksgiving where they focused on prayer and feasting. The U.S. Continental Congress proclaimed a national thanksgiving upon the enactment of the Constitution, but after 1798, the new U.S. Congress left thanksgiving declarations up to the individual states. Why? Well, you see, some of the states objected to the national government's involvement in a religious observance. And so debate developed and a national day to give thanks seemed more like a lightning rod for controversy than a day to unify the country to give thanks to God. So because of this ongoing annual debate and controversy, Thanksgiving did not become an official national holiday until October 3rd, 1863. It was during the Civil War. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln declared a national day of Thanksgiving to be celebrated on Thursday, November 26th. And ever since, with only a few exceptions, this holiday has been annually proclaimed by each of our presidents. Given the direction of our country, given the many developments within our country over the last decade, I grow annually in my thankfulness for Thanksgiving, because it really is remarkable that our presidents still call for a day of giving thanks. It's remarkable because giving thanks implies that you are giving thanks to someone. You must be giving thanks to someone. And as those who know that one, as those who know the one true and living God, we should hear a president calling upon us to give thanks to God with eagerness, to take that call and to run with it to the glory and praise of God. So tomorrow, work will be paused for many, if not all of us. Family and friends will gather, putting many other things aside in order to give thanks to God. And so as Christians, we ought to be excited about this opportunity because it's an opportunity for us to glorify God in this world. So how are we to give thanks? What reasons do we have to be thankful and what should our thanksgiving look like? Well, as with all other questions that pertain to life and godliness, we ought to turn to God's word for answers to our questions and that's why we are here tonight. That's why we have our Bibles now open to Psalm 100. You see, this psalm is a clear call to give thanks. And as you see there in your Bible, the Spirit-inspired title to this psalm is a psalm for giving thanks. So here we have Spirit-inspired words intended to stir our hearts up into thanksgiving to God. So listen again to the language of the text and pay particular attention to the kind of thanksgiving that we are to give to God. Hear how 
We are to give thanks. Psalm 100 says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. What kind of thankfulness does this demand? There's more, verse 3. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. What kind of giving thanks does God desire? Well, I hope in hearing these two verses, the answer is obvious. God desires true, heartfelt thanksgiving. He desires deep, sincere, and exuberant praise from his people. He desires that kind of joy and praise that is neither contrived nor perfunctory, but rather authentic and enthusiastic. Well, since this is what God desires from us as his people, how does he give it to us? You see, God does not demand this kind of praise from us and then leave us to ourselves. He doesn't leave us to stir up our own hearts using our own imaginations to try to figure out why God is worthy of such praise. Instead, he calls us to praise him in a particular way, and then he generates that kind of praise within our hearts. And so in this psalm, just as God gives us this call to give him this kind of praise and thanks, he also accompanies the call with abundant reason to exalt and to praise his name. And so Psalm 100 fills our hearts to overflowing by giving us two reasons to give thanks. And these will be our focus tonight. Why should we give God exuberant praise? Well, first of all, because we are his. This psalm could be summarized with those words. We are his. Listen again to the text. First, it begins with that call to a certain kind of worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Well, why? Why are we to be filled with this kind of praise? The answer is given. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The first reason that God gives to drive us to giving thanks is that we are his. The reason begins by bringing two ideas to mind. First of all, it says the Lord is God. And you see there that that word Lord is capitalized. This is the one who reveals himself here in his word. He alone is God. Here God's word declares that there is only one true and living God, and he is the God of the Bible. He alone is God, and there is no other. Second, God reveals himself with that name, Yahweh, or capital, capitalized Lord, in the text. That is the way that God revealed himself to Moses in the wilderness when he said, I am or I am that I am. I am the self-existing one. And that is his covenant name. Which means our God, the one true and living God, he is a covenant-keeping God. And so every promise that he makes, he also fulfills. That which he promises, 
he will keep. When God revealed himself in this way, he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Brothers and sisters, there is only one God. He is the Lord, and he is your covenant-keeping God. Well, after making this introduction, God goes on in Psalm 100 to make his particular emphasis. What is it that God himself emphasizes for why we are to praise him in this way? Well, he says, it is he who made us, and we are his. That is God's own emphasis. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You can hear God's own emphasis. We are to give God great praise because we are his. The language of the text gives us images to meditate upon. Three images that help us to appreciate what this really means. First, it says, we are his people. What does it mean to be the people of God? Well, in Deuteronomy 7, God says to his people, whom he has just redeemed out of Egypt and is now bringing into the promised land, listen to what he says to his people. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We are his people. And that means that we are his treasured possession. God looks upon you as his pride and joy. We are his. Paul looks at this from a different angle in 1 Corinthians 1, but aimed at the same end. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are to rejoice and give thanks because we are his people. 
the covenant-keeping God, the one true and living God. He has taken you to be his very own, his treasured possession. The second image is that of sheep. We are his sheep. And that imagery really calls to mind at least two things. To begin with, it calls to mind that very special and unique relationship between sheep and shepherd. There is a special relationship in that imagery between that shepherd who cares for his sheep. The shepherd dedicates himself to the care of his sheep. The shepherd devotes himself to provide, to protect, and to preserve his sheep. Listen to how God's word describes that relationship. Psalm 23, we are his sheep. Now listen to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what it means that we are his sheep. It means that we have the constant, ever-present care of the good shepherd. Which brings us to the second reason why this is so significant. How in the world did we become his sheep? Well, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep. When Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist pointed at him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, brothers and sisters, the reason why you are his sheep is because the Lamb of God laid down his own life. He died for you, he substituted himself for sinners. Think again upon the significance of this. Because of sin's entrance into this world, you and I were actually born enemies of God. When sin entered into this world through Adam, enmity was placed between us and God. In Adam's sin, we took the side of Satan. We took the side of that serpent and we were at enmity with God. But God, in his incredible love and grace and mercy, right away he made a glorious gospel promise when he said, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Do you hear how God immediately said, I'm going to change? The nature of this relationship. We chose the side of the serpent in Adam. We were at enmity with, against God and with the serpent. But God made a promise to take those who were once his enemies and he would miraculously make them his friends. How would he change the arrangement of that enmity? 
Well, that glorious seed promise of the gospel anticipated the most shocking price to ever be paid. Because in that promise, the father was saying that he was going to do this by sacrificing his only son. Because he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We are now his sheep. We are now his sheep because the son is the lamb of God who was slain. In Ephesians 2, Paul labors. He urges us to remember this. He urges us to remember this because we are so prone to forget it. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is why we are now his sheep. We are now his because of the lamb who was slain. Well, third... The, the third image that we are given here is not only are we his sheep, but the text specifically says we are the sheep of his pasture. Not just that we are his sheep, we are also specifically the sheep of his pasture. What does that mean? Well, it means that we live out our lives within the green pastures that the good shepherd provides. Psalm 23, again, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, I need to state the obvious. I need, to, I need to say what you all already know. This does not mean that we will live out our days as if immune to all of the miseries that come with life in a fallen world, with life in a broken world. No, as you heard me read in Psalm 23, it carefully makes mention of the valley of the shadow of death, of evil and even of enemies. Each of these things will still mark the pilgrim journey through this world. So, what does it mean then that we are the sheep of his pasture? What does it mean that we belong to his pasture and not another pasture? Well, one way that we can look at this is through the lens of God's covenantal dealings with us as his people. You see, God relates to mankind only by way of covenant. Every man, woman, and child relates to God only by way of his covenant. The question becomes, by which covenant? Which way do you relate to God? By way of which of his covenants? In the Garden of Eden, God established the covenant of works with Adam. And in that covenant, God promised perfect and perpetual unhindered, elevated communion with God forever based upon Adam's perfect obedience. In that covenant, God also threatened the loss of that perfect enjoyment of God if Adam were to transgress the covenant. Well, you know that Adam sinned. 
And he broke God's covenant, and because of that, he plunged all of his descendants into this present state of sin and misery as the initial consequence of a broken covenant. But praise be to God, because there is another covenant. Because of God's love, grace, and mercy, he established the covenant of grace with his own son, with the second Adam, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that covenant, God promised to redeem to himself a people for his own treasured possession. On the basis of his sovereign grace, he designed that his son, the Lord Jesus, he would perfectly fulfill the covenant of works by his own perfect perpetual obedience and by his substitutionary death upon the cross. And so one way that we can think about belonging to his pastures is to think in terms of the covenant by which we relate to God. You see, we no longer relate to God in terms of that broken covenant of works, which means it is not on the basis of your own performance that you live before God. Instead, you are the sheep of his pasture. And in this pasture, you relate to God on the basis of the perfect, satisfactory performance of his own son. You are the sheep of his pasture. And because the lamb that was slain, your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And you are clothed in the perfect and unstained robes of Christ's righteousness. So you and I are to give great thanks to God because we are the sheep of his pasture. And even though we still live our lives in a sin-sick world, we are always walking through the pastures of God's covenant of grace. So brothers and sisters, give thanks to God. Give thanks to God because we are his people, we are his sheep, and we are the sheep of his pasture. Well, that is only half of what God gives us here, that we might praise his name. So what else does he add? Well, we are to praise God because we are his, and second, because he is good. Because he is good. The second half of Psalm 100 begins with another call to give thanks to God. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. The imagery or the, so the, the language of this psalm for giving thanks uh, invokes images of a victorious king entering into his courts after returning from battle. Have that imagery in your mind. All of his people are in his courts waiting for the king to return. And suddenly the king enters in victorious from battle. What happens? Well, immediately the people rise and erupt. Suddenly the whole host leaps and explodes in praise. Why? Well, because their king is victorious. And this is why we are to give God such praise. How does he cause our hearts to overflow here in this portion of Psalm 100? Well, the text says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The text begins saying the Lord is good. 
And we need to think carefully about that word good because how we tend to use it today, it really empties the word of all meaning. How was your day? Good. How was your lunch? Good. How was the basketball game? Good. In our common usage, good is almost meaningless. But that is not how the word of God employs that word here. Instead, when God's word declares that the Lord is good, it means that he is perfect. It means that he is absolutely morally upright and excellent. It means that all of his ways are righteous. In everything he does, he is perfectly wise. He is good in the sense that he loves good, does that which is good, and always gives what is good. And so the text itself unpacks the goodness of the Lord in two ways. It says, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. And so this language turns our attention to two aspects of God's goodness. First of all, his steadfast love endures forever, which means the covenant faithfulness of God will never end. Again, we can turn our attention to the nature of the covenants. The covenant of works placed Adam in a period that was probationary. It placed Adam in a time where man's elevation or man's demotion hung in the balance. Things were for Adam precarious, but not so in the covenant of grace. For all those who have new life in Christ, the covenant of grace is absolutely secure. Why? Because his steadfast love, his covenant mercies endure forever. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is good because his steadfast love endures forever. The second part of verse 5 says, And his faithfulness endures to all generations. Verse 5 contains two parallel statements. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness endures to all generations. And as parallel statements, the words of the second line emphasize the first. Both of these communicate that glorious truth that God is forever faithful. But that final line actually brings out an emphasis not in the other. It says that he is faithful to all generations. It highlights how God's faithfulness not only never ends, but it is going to be found in each and every successive generation. We might think of generations in the past where God's blessing was abundant where we might see God's blessing, his faithfulness in so many obvious ways. But right now, we might look and wonder about the next generation or the one to come. And, and we might begin to wonder, is God's faithfulness going to be found? Well, the promise of God's word is his faithfulness endures to all generations. You young people especially should give thanks to God for the promise of his word. Because his faithfulness will be found in your generation. Because his faithfulness endures to each and every generation. We are to give thanks. We are to praise God's name. Because God's faithfulness never ends. 
His faithfulness will be found in every generation. Well, this text highlights an important word. And it is the word that really can summarize this entire psalm. And it is that word, his. In verse 5, the emphasis is upon his steadfast love. The emphasis is upon his faithfulness. What does this mean or why is that significant? Well, it means that even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. In Romans 3, Paul asks, what if some were unfaithful? Does, this, does, their, uh, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Paul makes it personal in 1 Corinthians 11, saying, Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We are to give thanks because of his faithfulness and his steadfast love. So listen again to the words of Deuteronomy 7. It says, No, just as our psalm does, Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is good. He is truly good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. God is faithful and because of his faithfulness, you are his. You are his people. You are his sheep. You are the sheep of his pasture. He is good. So what kind of praise is fitting for a God who is so good? What kind of thanksgiving are we to give to God because we are his and because he is good? Well, listen again to the text. May God's word create these things in our hearts as we know his word is powerful to create by the very speaking of his word. God says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. As you can hear, we are to give to God the kind of praise that a people would render to their king when he returns victorious in battle. The very moment that his, present beco- his presence becomes apparent, because they are his, they would rise and shout, they would leap and exult, they would become overcome with thankfulness and praise. Well, brothers and sisters, whenever we worship God together, we do so in an intentional anticipation of that glorious day when what we are thinking upon right now by faith, it will become sight. That glorious day when in glorified bodies we will gather together around God's throne to worship him 
And so even now we are too, with the eyes of faith, worship God, fixed attention upon Christ. Because we are his and he is good. Because of his steadfast love, because of his faithfulness, because of Christ, you will one day be there in that great multitude that no one can number. From every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You will be clothed in a white robe. You will have a palm branch in your hand. And you will join your voice with that incredible multitude. And you will say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And you will give praise to God because you are his. And because he is good. So brothers and sisters, until that day, let us commit to making our way heavenward with this kind of thanksgiving and praise upon his lips. Each week we enter his gates, entering his courts, coming into his presence with joy. Because we are his and because he is good. Let us pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, you have been and are so very good. When we think upon how we were by birth in Adam, we were once your enemies. We were at enmity with you. You would have been perfectly just to leave us in our sins. You would have granted our desire if you would have allowed us to remain your enemies. But because you are good, you sent forth the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue sinners from an eternity of enmity with God. And instead of that enmity, because Christ bore that curse in his own body upon that tree, the enmity is now between us and your enemy. And we have been reconciled to you, and by faith even now we enjoy communion with you, the living God. And we are yours. And you are good. And we thank you that with each and every passing moment, we draw nearer to this glorious day that our worship anticipates. And we pray that as we fix our eyes by faith upon you, our God, in that great day, that you would fill our hearts with an even greater love for you, that you would drive out of our hearts our remaining love for this world, so that we might glorify you here, so that we might speak of your praises in this world. Lord, will you fill us with thanksgiving? Will you bless us tomorrow that as we gather together with family and friends, may we speak your praise. May we give thanks to the one true and living God. May we Go about the week ahead rejoicing because we belong to you and because you are good. And through your steadfast love 
and because of your faithfulness, which will endure forever, we know that it is only a matter of time before you wipe away every tear from our eyes. You remove all sin and suffering, and you fill us with joy in that perfect, unhindered communion with you, our God. Lord, drive these things into our hearts so that praise may come out of our mouths. We ask that you would glorify yourself in this way as we pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together.